Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. This is the Struggle Care Podcast, the self-care podcast by a host that hates the term self-care. Welcome back. And today we are talking with Chris Wilson. And what we're going to talk about today is something called a high control group. And if you don't know what that means, you've never heard that term. It's basically, and Chris, you can correct me on this. It's basically like the clinical term for a cult. That is one term for it. Yes. Okay. How would you describe what a high control group is to someone that doesn't know? I would say that the word cult specifically is a toxic form of high control. There are forms of high control in religion or other groups that may be welcome or even functional. But when we think of high control, most of the time we're thinking toxic. We're thinking about abuse of power, abuse of control, and the things that truly would induce trauma in people. I have so many questions to jump off from there. But before I get too far ahead, why do you know all this stuff? So I have a long history of studying these kinds of topics. I am autistic and ADHD, and so my special interest started when I was about seven. I wanted to understand the world around me and understand people, knew I was kind of different, and I therefore systematically hit the Dewey Decimal System in the library, and I found metaphysics and psychology, and I haven't left there. Now, looking back, of course, I can sit there and say, wow, the fact that I did that does point out some slight differences between me and the average person. But psychology has always just fundamentally drawn me to understand even the problems within that framework. And I have a background being raised Southern Baptist and a conservative form of the Episcopal Church. And I grew up with a lot of religious trauma. And I left the church for many years. I also got involved in a lot of New Age and neo-pagan groups, and I saw the same kind of abuses happening there. And I survived some really extreme things in my life. And so when I had the chance to finally go to college and figure this stuff out, that became my passion, helping people identify these red flags, helping people see the abuse, regardless of what you believed, regardless of your framework or lack of belief, because these things can show up even in corporate policy. You know, we can see those anywhere. And so that became a study of interest. I have a bachelor's degree in sociology, a master's in religion, and I'm working on my master's in industrial and organizational psychology now. So that's where I'm at. That's awesome. And so you and I met on TikTok. We were mutuals for a long time. And the reason I've always been interested in high control groups is because I had kind of a unique experience as a teenager. I had a really severe drug addiction when I was in high school. And my parents tried to help me. I went to a psych ward for a little bit, and eventually they sent me to residential treatment. And I went to a teen rehab for 18 and a half months. And when I left there, I left like, I'm healthy. I'm sober. I am the star client. I genuinely learned a lot of healthy coping skills. I genuinely emerged with a really meaningful spirituality. I genuinely learned to be honest with myself and others. I shared, you know, all the things I was ashamed of. I found belonging. I found love. I found acceptance. I found growth. I found a lot of maturity. And I continued to have nightmares that I was being sent back to treatment even though I was sober. 
and every nightmare was the same. I get to treatment. I say, I don't need to be here. I'm sober. And they say, that's what everybody says. We know you're lying. And in the dream, I'm over 18. So I can just like sign myself out and leave. And I continue to say, I don't need to be here. And they say, yes, you do. You're very sick. And I, the dream ends the same every way, which is me saying I could sign myself out and then deciding not to because I'm unwilling to leave unless they are convinced that I'm healthy. Like I can't cope with sort of the mismatched reality where they think this thing of me. And I started seeing a therapist and sort of trying to figure out why I had such conflicting feelings about my rehab experience. And really what it came down to was there was some really intense psychological interventions used that I now know are tactics of high control groups. And so when I first found, you know, high control group as a term, I would look at the things that were like the criteria and I'd go, oh my God, this is what happened to me. And it was even more confusing because I didn't feel like it was like some horribly damaging experience, but there was some sort of weird trauma that I was really angry that somebody locked me up for 18 months and like basically used these like heavily coercive, psychologically coercive tactics to like, quote unquote, treat me. And I ended up, when I left that treatment center, joining a 12-step group that was actually very similar. Like I was told who I was allowed to date, where I had to be every night. I had to send an email every night about any kind of selfishness I had done in the day. We were the only AA group that knew good 12-step like how to get sober and all the other groups were wrong. And fast forward, I decided to leave that group. And when I left, I was told, like, if you leave, you will get high, you will relapse and die. And I left. All my friends stopped talking to me. My roommate broke our lease and moved out. They told everybody I was dangerous. So I had this sort of back-to-back experience of being in high-control groups. And that's how I became fascinated in high-control groups, especially trying to piece together how can something that I can point to ways that they genuinely helped me also created this weird underlying trauma. And I've talked to other girls that went through the same process that are in the same place. So I think it's interesting, me coming from a recovery background, you coming from a religious background, and I just kind of wanted to talk about it. I wanted to talk about what makes something a high control group. How does that affect people? You were one of the people that actually really helped me piece together what was going on. And it was when you finally said, regardless of whether or not they are trying to bring about a good and healthy outcome for you, the actual tactics themselves are damaging. They're coercive, they ignore consent, and they create damage even if, like, basically the ends don't justify the means. So I will stop babbling about this, but so what makes a group a high control group? So when we're looking at groups, and I think, you know, hearing more of your background in this story connects to a lot of the things that I have done research on when I was doing my master's thesis in religion, because I really focused in on cult indoctrination tactics and high control groups within American Christianity. But one of the things that came out of this and from connections on TikTok and from talking to other people in the field was how it started getting involved in a lot of the mainstream Christianity was the youth intervention programs. 
it was the troubled youth industry. Uh, those tactics were initially meant to try and bring people back from the brink of self-destruction in many ways. But one of the things that we have to recognize is that in taking these extreme tactics, we are enforcing an external control upon individuals. We're not teaching them coping mechanisms a lot of the times. We are still making them subject to other people's opinions, other people's feelings, other people's idea of who and what they should be. So when we're looking at what makes a high control group, we're looking at any organization, any group of people that are prioritizing a kind of predatory collectivism is the best way I can put it. Because when we're looking at a high control group, we're looking at the kinds of in religious organizations, the prayer that actually is gossiping. Oh, we need to pray for Susie who's having this problem with gossip, 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 right? It's a really common thing. A lot of people will see that. But as I've said, a certain amount of control is not necessarily bad. And we might think of this in terms of, let's talk about like Judaism has a lot of regulations as part of their faith practice. And inherently, those regulations might be considered to be very high control. If you're going down the bite model from Hassan's high control groups measurement, you might look and go, wow, they have a lot of regulation. It's about their food. It's about who they're you know, friends with. But is that something that is fundamentally toxic? And the answer is no. In most of the situations, that level of control is not actually passing a threshold of toxic engagement. Similarly, a Christian church might have a similar baseline. They might have, okay, we don't want you to drink. We don't want you to smoke. We don't want you to consume these things. That may not inherently be toxic for everybody in that situation. I also, it reminds me of like school, right? Like my kids are in school now. And like, there's a lot about school where there's a lot of regulations, a lot of control, a lot of hierarchy, a lot of authority, but like not every school is a high control group or is toxic or is damaging, right? Exactly. And so if we're talking about the school system, there is a lot to be said about how schools are implemented. Now, we know from the history of education that there is a tendency to regiment school in a similar way to prisons. And there is a whole school to prison pipeline, with especially in marginalized communities. And one of the things that happens is the lower class of the school, the less funding the school has, the more likely it is to engage in toxic forms of high control with an idea that those with privilege fundamentally know better, that kind of paternalism, that I know better than you, I am smarter than you, I am more financially successful and therefore I am better and I know what you need in your life. And so there's a, a wider theme here of society telling people what is best for them? I also think about when you said that it originated with the teen industry where we're trying to bring people back from the brink of death. And I will be the first to admit, like, I was delusional. Like, I truly needed some sort of, like, reverse brainwashing. Because, like, in effect, like, I already was indoctrinated into this subculture. I was already kind of delusional. I was very sick. My therapist friend and I talk about this all the time. How do you respect the autonomy of a person whose autonomy is dead set on killing themselves? 
right? And so I don't even know that I feel like, oh, they never should have used these things. I mean, I wish they hadn't. But at the same time, even if they we were to say some of these coercive tactics, and we'll get into like some examples, are necessary to prevent someone who is not in their right mind from hurting themselves. I think at that point, what I recognize is nobody ever built an off-ramp for me, though. Like, if I were, they couldn't just go into me when I was 15 doing a bunch of cocaine of like, just learn to trust yourself because like, I didn't have a good internal compass, right? So there was sort of this like breaking down of my ego and taking away of my identity. But when they rebuilt all that stuff, there never was a point where it was like, okay, now let's learn how to trust yourself again. Now let's learn how to find your identity again. It was just take it off of the drugs and put it on us as a rehab. And you mentioned Stephen Hassan. I think that's probably the first thing I saw. He has this BITE model, B-I-T-E, for like the criteria. And the first one is behavior control. And so for me, like, it's different to say lunch is at 11 and you need to be done with lunch by 1130, right? Like, that's whatever. At my rehab, lunch was at 11. You had to sit at the tables. You were only allowed to talk to the person directly in front of you. You could not talk to the people to the left of you. At When the last person had their meal, you had to sit down. You had 10 minutes to eat. At the end of 10 minutes, you had to be done. You had to have one protein, one starch, one whatever. Once you've eaten that, then you can go and get a peanut butter sandwich if you want to. If you're on a phase one, you were not allowed to talk to other phase ones without somebody else listening to you. If you... Right. So like the behavior control is like a whole nother level. And when I look at my 12 step example, it seems like there's a difference between, like you said, like a church saying, like, we don't want you to drink. We don't want you to smoke. But there's like an element of consent to that versus how are we going to react if you aren't? How are we going to find out if you are? Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like from the behavior control perspective? Well, and it's it's about punitive baselines, punishment, right, fundamentally. The idea that if you do not, then you will X, Y, and Z. Like, it is a form of shunning. You see this in different groups, and you, you explain that when you left the 12th the step, that there was a shunning, which we know in terms of resiliency studies, in terms of what people helps people actually cope with the hardships of life and what makes things traumatic because it's very subjective person to person, right? Resilience is based off of internal baselines, right? Your internal resiliency, uh, but also your support, your external resiliency, the people you have there. And so shunning is one of the worst things you can do to somebody in a lot of ways, because it fundamentally removes all ability to cope socially. And that is that kind of punitive repercussion of behaviors that shows up in a lot of toxic groups of there's a difference between a boundary. For example, if the group says, if you are engaging in abusive behaviors to other members, we have to exclude you from this space. That is a rule that you can set. It's a boundary of behavioral expectation within that space. With that is about your engagement with that space, right? So that's a healthy thing to have. If I'm holding a ministry group, I need to make sure that I have behavioral standards for what's happening here. But if I then move that to a behavioral control where if I find out that you went and had a sip of alcohol somewhere or went even went to a bar with somebody else and I you could have been thought to have alcohol, then 
that's me extending a level of control to your life outside of your voluntary association, your voluntary association with this group. And shunning and that kind of rejection and that kind of cutting off hits what is called uh, terror management theory, which is the idea of isolation is death within our psyche, within our brains, that if we are by ourselves evolutionarily, we cannot survive. And so when you have that provoked by groups doing this kind of behavioral control, you know, thou shalt, thou shalt not, to a degree that they're really holding you to this extreme, you're going to have psychological stress and trauma that can come from that. If there's one thing I love, it is a product that is affordable, good for the environment, and saves space. And that's why I'm back to plug Earth Breeze, which is a detergent sheet. It is like throwing a dryer sheet into the wash, except instead of a dryer sheet, it is detergent. And it works really well. It keeps things really clean and you can do a subscription service so that it shows up at the right time. So not only do you not have to think about it when you're at the grocery store, you don't have to buy huge plastic jugs. You don't have to lug those heavy things home and you can feel better about your laundry. Making laundry a little bit easier has always been the name of the game with Earth Breeze. It fights everyday stains and odors, giving you an amazing clean every time. And that's it. Really, you just throw a sheet in with the laundry and watch it dissolve with any cycle, hot or cold. No measuring, no mess, and best of all, no wasteful plastic jug. Switching to Earth Breeze would not only make laundry easier for you, but easier on the planet. Right now, my listeners can get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash struggle. That's earthbreeze.com slash struggle for 40% off your subscription. I'm someone who happens to believe that the chore of feeding myself is one of the most annoying care tasks. And that's why I really like Factor. And when I say I really like Factor, I mean, they shipped me some food and told me to eat it and make an ad. And I not only did that, but then I went back and spent my own money and bought more of them. And I can't wait till the box gets here. That's because Factor really does make eating easier. And this was on the heels of a doctor's appointment where I got very strict instructions to give my body better nutrients. So wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with pre-prepared, chef-crafted and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. And they actually do taste good. You'll get over 35 different options a week to choose from. And even I, a very picky eater, always can find something that I like. I love that they are two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. They all take two minutes in the microwave. Snacks, smoothies, breakfast, dinner. You can discover a wide variety of easy options. Sign up and save now. We've done the math. Factor is actually less expensive than takeout, and every meal is a dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. My own dietitian was stoked when I told her that I'd made this decision. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. So head over to factormeals.com slash struggle50 and use code struggle50 to get 50% off your first box and two free wellness shots per box while the subscription is active. That's code struggle50 at factormeals.com slash struggle50 to get 50% off your first box and two free wellness shots per box while the subscription is active. Even my husband says this is the best he's ever tried. And we've tried a lot of these. And as you were talking about, you can't talk to the person in front of you. You can't, everyone has to stand around and then sit together and have a certain time. That was basic training. And a lot of these things we understand is from military training. Now, this is where it gets complex and where this is a really nuanced and difficult thing to talk about. Because this kind of training in the military actually provides group cohesion and resilience in the face of known expectations of danger. It actually is more helpful to have them go through a trial experience together 
and then be able to work as units. Well, what's wild is that it was that experience that made me bonded forever to these girls that I went through. It was that experience that made it where we're sharing our deepest, darkest secrets and we're looking at each other and going, I'm broken, you're broken, I'm broken. Maybe everyone's broken. I'm going to decide to love you anyways. Oh my God. Like I came out with a totally different experience of vulnerability and wholeness and wholeheartedness, like all that kind of stuff from that experience, right? So I saw that like, quote unquote, cohesion that it brings to kind of go through war together with someone. And but the other thing that really hits me is when you said like protecting the space versus controlling your every life, right? Like I a lot of times people will hear about high control groups and they'll be like, oh man, that sounded like my school. That sounds like my dad. That sounds like my family. But like even in the military, you can leave the military. I'm not trying to make light that that's an easy thing to do or a hard thing to do, right? But like you can leave the military. You can go home from school and potentially be in a different environment than what they're doing in school. And I think my experience with being in high control groups is that the way they extend it past, because a lot of people, why didn't you just leave? Why didn't you just go to a different AA group? Well, because there's this existential backstop to leaving, which is you're going to drink and die. We are the only people that understand sobriety. We are the only people that understand you. We are the only people that can protect you from yourself. And if you leave us, leaving is an action that reflects that you are not healthy and you will drink and die, right? So that's how it was summed up in sobriety. And it's different, like sometimes AA groups will say like, man, if you leave AA, you'll drink and die. But that, to me, even still is different than someone saying, if you leave this group, this one group that meets on a Tuesday night, right? And I know religions will do it with, if you leave this church, you'll go to hell. Not, And so we're not talking about if you leave our religion, but like literally controlling what actual subgroup you belong to. I would agree. I think that in order to not diminish how toxic it can be, even at a workplace, for example, because in a workplace, yeah, you could find another work, but can you? Context matters so much. Nuance matters so much in these, in the sense that there are wider social expectations. If you are in a small town and you are dealing with a toxic workplace, and that's the only place that you can get a job in this town, that's going to be a different situation than you actually have the personal resources and ability to find jobs maybe in a city or maybe the city's so expensive you don't know if you can afford to change jobs, or you're worried that if they find that you're even searching for a job, they're gonna get rid of you. So it's all about leverage points. But I do agree, when we start moving towards the term where most people would say cult, we're talking about the things that you're talking about, that intense subgrouping that puts so much in-group, out-group like connection that it is us or death. It is us or nothing. And so that's really where we start seeing what would typically be called a cult. The reason I don't like using that term and most people have abandoned it is because there was so much obsession with brainwashing and cults in the 60s and 70s that pretty much was a lot of very mainstream conservative folks going, anything that is not our wonderful white bread view of the world is bad and is a cult and our children choosing to do this must mean that they are being brainwashed. 
So a lot of the term cults, it's really difficult to use that term these days. And one man's cult is another man's, you know, new religious movement. So there's so much nuance. And even when we say this group, definitely like this is a life, like in death kind of cult group that is so high control and is so toxic, that is going to be different for every person in that group on whether or not that high level of control is damaging to them because some people thrive in higher control environments, not necessarily toxic ones, but some people need that regulation and want and crave that regulation. Whereas for others, it will be profoundly traumatizing. And the same is true in that whole spectrum. So B is behavior control. I is information control. Mm -hmm. And what does information control look like in the context of a high control group? So information control is, I can put this in a religious context really easily, because a religious institution might say, you can only read these approved books. You uh, cannot consume secular media. You cannot, and it might be even in something like in a 12-step program, you are only allowed to read the materials we provide you. You are only allowed to engage in with people who are also members, you know, in, in terms of the, in, because even the control of behavior can stop the flow of information because everybody is bought into the same program. That was and my so, experience. Like with when I wasn't allowed to read certain books when I was in rehab, I wasn't allowed to read certain books when I was in a 12 step group. And like all of our letters were read going in and out. We had approved people we were allowed to talk to. We had things we weren't allowed to talk to with each other, even in the back rooms. There were just subjects that we weren't allowed to talk about. And then we also had what I now know are called thought-stopping cliches. Oh, yes. <laughs> right? So, like, you start to wonder, like, wait a second, why? And you start to, like, question the whole thing. And then they would give you this thought-stopping cliche. Can you talk about those for a minute? When I found that term, I was like, oh, that's what those are called. You know, it's example would be something like it's all in God's hands. Everything happens for a reason. Every positive, like spiritually bypassing phrase that stops the conversation, that stops you critically evaluating what's happening. It's sort of a lack of control. Like even sometimes I see this in the 12 step programs as well. Like it's in God's hands. It's in my higher powers hands. It's when we talk about like taking responsibility. One of the biggest things that we see is there is a weird dynamic between what you are supposed to personally be taking credit for and responsibility for and what you put onto a higher power, divinity, God, fate, whatever you know it is in your particular path. But a lot of times it puts the anything bad and shame ridden on you and it puts anything good as an external attribution that is not you. And often of the group. Yeah, it was the group that got you there. But if the bad thing is, that's you failing. And it's it's a really awful dynamic. Yeah, ours was always something related to, like, running on self-will, right? Like, we were told that our addictions were because we ran on self-will. And so if you started thinking, like, well, but this doesn't make sense. Well, why can't? And it's like, hey, your best thinking got you here. So stop thinking. Just follow directions. Going back to, like, I mean, that's kind of right, like, my best thinking did get me there. 
But again, there wasn't enough knowledge about the impact of some of these things. So speaking of behavior and information control, what's the T? I forgot what the T is. Thought. Thought control. Ooh. So that's kind of like a scary thing, right? We think of thought control. We think of like mind control as some sort of like psychic thing. But what does it look like for real? So when we look at, at like thought control, everyone's like, you know, we do have this kind of sci-fi, you know, in, ooh, indoctrination. <laughs> it's more of the an idea of like rightness of thought. When you've controlled the behavior and you control the information, now internally there is a kind of the term panopticon is one of the ones in the social sciences of social control. So the idea that God is always watching, Santa Claus is watching, the elf on the shelf is watching, the you know, big brother, whoever you want it, you know, you're being monitored. And therefore, you must control your own internal processes due to this. So the idea of the 1950s housewife, for example, who can't leave the house without a full face of makeup and everything perfect, because what would the neighbors think? And I have, I can't even talk about these topics. I can't think about these topics. It's inappropriate. It's taboo. And it takes the taboo not only to an external control, but you must internalize this. You must control how you think. You must have, it's usually a very bad cycle of shame and compulsion. Ooh, that really hits me. That was every single, when I was in recovery and a 12-step recovery and in rehab, and I'm actually a fan of the 12 steps. It works really well for some people. And there were like really great gems in it. But it, it really was manipulated in some ways, especially around what is there's like a step that talks about like critically reviewing your day to look at like, how was my behavior today? Did my behavior match up to my values? Was I being honest? Was I being like all these things, which is like by itself, like a great little practice of introspection and insight and accountability and kindness and all this kind of stuff. But the way it got used in my life was if you are not quote unquote cleared out, right? Like if you haven't like confessed whatever misstep, and it could be as something as simple as a selfish thought you had that day. It could be something as simple as I said something and I said it because I wanted attention and that's selfish. And if I don't go to my sponsor and tell her that so that she can kind of like finger wag me and then be like, okay, moved on. And in my mind, it's like now it's absolved. Now it's out there. Now it can't trip me up and make me get drunk. But if I don't do that. So and it's similar I think with some religions where it's like, I could sin in my thoughts and prevent me from going to heaven. And so that same thing with my recovery, it was like, I could be thinking selfish things. I could be doing things when no one's looking. And that's somehow metaphysically connected to whether or not I'm going to stay sober. And so again, it's like a nice concept that can make you be like a better, more mature person, but it got used for thought control. Like you have to tell us all your secrets. And and we weren't allowed to quote unquote gossip, which literally meant we just weren't allowed to talk to our friends about like things we were struggling with. You were only allowed to talk to one person about that so that they could kind of control your like thoughts about it and what you thought about it. Absolutely. And this is actually what we see a lot of times where there is an element of 
like overshare, forced overshare into it keeps you dependent. And very often it makes you not just like in you're familiar with all of the psychology elements of like we have frameworks for understanding, we have schemas, we have ways of moving forward to figure out how to evaluate and grow. And there's all different sorts of modalities of how that plays out for each person and then how a therapist might help you through this. But in a toxic format, we are in some ways changing those. We're bastardizing them to a degree in the sense that we are taking this idea of, you know, getting out what is within us. And we are taking it to the point where you are making and fostering dependency upon the group, upon the program. And that is often so toxic because, again, that compulsion shame cycle happens. I compare it very often to diet culture. So your body needs food and we need social engagement. Regardless of neurotype, we need some sort of people who care about us. We are a social species, even through neurodiversity. We need people to support us back and forth, and that is how we thrive. But what happens is, in something like diet culture, we tell that people that they are wrong for being how they are. We tell them that they need to have a certain body type, a certain way of being, a certain way of thinking, a certain way of, you know, that thought terminating cliche of like nothing is tastes as good as being thin feels, right? That's another thought terminating cliche that you put into this. But if you diet, you are fundamentally dysregulating your engagement with food in a healthy way. And what we see is you resist, 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 resist you still want those foods, your body is craving those foods, you're still trying to do this. And now every donut shop, you see temptation everywhere. Everything, every good smell, every anything is taking you to this point of guilt and shame because of the thought control. The thought control is, I am better than this and I am failing. You get these internal narratives. I am failing if I am even being tempted by this good food smell. I am failing if I'm around anybody eating. So then you're socially isolated. And again, it's like diet culture. You're socially isolated. So you have to spend time around people who are also doing this fad diet with you. And you move into this space where everything is now a temptation because you've dysregulated how you are supposed to be engaging. The same thing happens with sin. I don't be preached at. Don't think about those sexual things. Don't think about the pink elephant. You know, it, it becomes this compulsion the internalized thinking process of shame, internal narrative, then eventually you are fixated on it because you're trying so hard not to. You've oriented your entire mindset and mind to not doing the bad thing, that now the bad thing is the only thing you think about and you compulsively engage. Is 2024 bringing exciting or unexpected changes to your life? Here's a secret weapon to help you face those challenges with more confidence a great term life insurance policy. I can't believe that I am 37 years old and I am excited about life insurance, but life comes at you fast. I feel like yesterday I was 25 and I wasn't thinking about stuff like this. But when my husband and I got married and we started having kids, it was one of the first conversations that he brought up. Really, Fabric by Gerber Life makes it simple to protect your family's financial future so you can focus on what's ahead, knowing your family is protected if something else unexpected happens. And I feel like I sleep better at night knowing that if something were to happen to he or I, that the other one could take care of our family. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by 
by parents for parents to help you get high quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. It's all online and on your schedule. No appointments, scheduling, or piles of paperwork. Just apply when it's convenient for you. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. So don't be somebody who finds when tragedy strikes, you're wishing that you would have made this choice. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash struggle. That's meetfabric.com slash struggle. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash struggle. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Insurance Company. Not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. And then it just further confirms that narrative that you are bad and broken without this group. So what is the E? So while you're looking it up, I'll tell you one of the crazier stories from when I was in rehab. So I was, we had this like honesty group where they were like, someone's lying and we don't know who it is. And they would send us into the other room and we had to sit down with a piece of paper and write down everything that we were lying or being dishonest about. And then you had to write on the back everything you knew that somebody else was lying about. And then you turned the papers in and the staff would go into the other room by themselves and they would compare them. And if they didn't match up perfectly, like if you said, I know that so-and-so stole a muffin last Tuesday, if her paper didn't say I stole a muffin, right? Like if they didn't match up, they would come back in and say, these don't match, do it again. And they wouldn't tell you what didn't match. And so you're sitting there and you're like, is it me? I don't know. And so you're racking your brain for like, what have I lied about? What am I not being honest about? So during one of these groups, I said to the girl in front of me, I said, I've been talking to my parents about my old friends. We were not allowed to talk about our outside friends to our parents. And this girl that overheard me say that thought that what I said was, I've been talking to my old friends. And for whatever reason, let's just say that talking about your old friends is like a very minor infraction in treatment world. Talking to your old friends is like a huge felony level infraction, right? And so we're sitting in the middle of family therapy, which was done, by the way, with everyone else in treatment and all of their families sitting around you in a circle. And this girl raises her hand and says, why aren't you getting honest about the fact you talk to your old friends? And I was like, uh, I don't. And the staff is looking at me like, what's going on? I continue to like stick to my guns that like I never talked to my old friends. They call me down to a staffing one day and they say, you're not getting better. You're not getting healthier. 
And I think it's because you're keeping secrets. And so you need to go to bed tonight and be damn sure that you aren't keeping any secrets. And I was like, oh, God, I'm like racking my brain, right? I shoot up in the middle of the night because I have this revelation. And I look at my roommate and go, oh, my God, I'm cheating on my schoolwork. So the way they did school in rehab was that they would give you these packets. You would do the work and then they would give you the teacher's manual and you would check your work. And but what I was doing was in literature class where they're like, what does the trombone represent? Right. It's like kind of subjective. Also, I'm very, very good at stuff like that. So I was answering all the questions, honestly, legitimately, and then just being like, yeah, it's right. hundred and not checking it. I didn't even realize that that was lying. In my head, I was just like, I'm so smart. I don't need this. So like, it was arrogance for sure, but like I wasn't consciously registering it as like that was telling a lie. But as I was like racking my brain, I was like, you know what? That is technically dishonest. To, you know, like I am saying I checked this and I didn't. So when I told them that, they basically accused me of like purposefully, consciously keeping this secret. And my punishment was this thing called being a, like the decision assignment where they said like, you can't make your own decisions. Every time you make your own decisions, you make bad ones, poor ones. And so what we're going to do is this assignment is we're going to have an older uh, client be your decision maker. And what that means is, is that when you wake up in the morning, that decision maker will come into your room and you will have to run every single decision by them. Can I get out of bed now? Can I put my clothes on? Can I wash my hair? Can I get dressed? Can I go to breakfast? Can I work on treatment? Can I go to group? Can I get my food? Can I eat? Can I talk to this person in front of me? So that you will learn how to let go of control. You're too in control. Which here's the thing. Maybe if that was an assignment that I came into with my own consent that lasted a day because, you know, well, here's like a weird creative thing we're going to do and I'm going to learn about myself. Okay, whatever. However, I didn't have consent. I was told that I had no choice, that I would never go home and it, if I didn't do it. And they kept me on it for six months. So for six months, I didn't make any of my own decisions. And what would happen is that because there are other teenagers who are my decision maker and it changed every day, we would like go through a transition where we were supposed to like leave the dining room and go to group therapy and they would forget about me. But I couldn't make the decision to get up and go. And my decision maker wasn't there. So I had to sit there until someone remembered me. And when I tell that story, a lot of people are like, why did you just sit there? No, I get it. You're traipsing across some of the things I've experienced in my own life in this story. And what you may have seen in my expressions, if you're watching the video there, that the, uh, yeah, that hit a couple of very, very personal kind of woundedness I have on these things because of the fact that that level of dehumanization that happens, I get the, you don't make a decision. I'll, I'll never get out. I'll never get out if I don't follow this. I'll never have anything again if I don't submit to this process. And I want to be better. And they're saying this is the only way to do it. I have a couple of experiences that are almost exactly the same in the sense that it was a very high control pagan polyamorous group that I was a part of. It was kind of a commune that I joined when I was really young because I have very complex trauma. I joke it's the made-for-lifetime TV movie, traumatic backstory. And so I didn't have healthy boundaries at all when I was younger. And I ended up, you know, leaving my home at the middle of high school, senior year, and finished at a different high school, married my boyfriend, 
at 19. And as soon as he, we were married, he was, you know, became exceedingly abusive and toxic and pushed to the point where we ended up in this, you know, commune-like environment that did that exact same thing to me, actually. Removed my ability to make all decisions because naturally everything had to be my fault because I was the youngest, because I was the one who couldn't make those decisions, because obviously my choices were so awful. But in coming back from that, I look at just how badly those other people were making decisions. They were just human. They were making awful decisions, too. They were making what they thought was going to save their own tail in that context. They were going through this. They were forgetting about me half the time, too. Like, And, and I, so I, I relate to the, I just have to get through this. I just have to survive. And that does tie back in, and you were corrected, he was emotional control for the bite model here. And that actually puts in this the emotional control, which is your needs are deemed wrong or selfish. The emotional baseline is you are not supposed to feel certain things. And if you feel those things, you're not supposed to tell anybody that you feel those things, except the person you're supposed to confess to and then tell them how awful you are by feeling this particular thing. Not living up to your potential, you're deficient, your past is suspect, you're suspect. Like, the, it instills fear, and it, the list here um, I pulled up was fear of thinking independently, fear of the outside world, fear of some sort of unknown enemy, losing one's salvation, being shunned by the group, others' disapproval, like, very highs and lows. And this is actually one of the things that came up in discussing on TikTok was the talking about cry nights became a big thing for a while where you have that whole like amalgamation of control through cultivating highs, emotional highs and lows together. Like this sort of like, you are depraved, you are awful, you are, you know, you're going to hell. These are all the things, you know, the cold reading. I know somebody in this room backslid over the summer. I know somebody in this room, you know, just things that a normal teenager would feel and think and be and using that to leverage the fear that maybe you aren't saved. Maybe you didn't actually mean it last year. So you got to go do that altar call now. And then doing that love bombing afterwards. Welcome back to the fold. We love you. You see, this is the true whatever, you know, it, whether it's a spiritual thing or it's any other group, you're seeing this kind of dramatic emotional highs and lows. And we're actually, one of the things that one of my professors, when I was doing um, my uh, master's in religion, he was studying people who came from high control groups in fundamentalist Christianity and then became more liberal, but were using protests for that same biochemical emotional highs and lows because that's what they were used to as experiencing the divine, that they were seeking out this protest, you know, kind of high and low, this intensity, because they weren't able to feel outside of those things. Yeah, I mean, we do end up sort of perpetuating the same things, even if it's for like the opposite ideology, because we tend to lump the ideology or the religion, whether it's sobriety, recovery, 12-step, whatever, if we experience that within a high control tactics and we lump them together and we kind of go, but we mistakenly assume. So then if I leave Christianity, if I leave 12 step, if I leave that religion or that commune, we can almost become like, now I'm anti that, but I'm now I'm using the same control tactics against my new group who are also anti that. And that actually kind of brings us to where I want to land the plane here, which is 
I'm still a Christian. I left the churches that I was at. I'm still sober. I left the 12-step groups that I was at. And what I don't want to do here is give the impression that, like, the safest thing you can do is just be alone, to not join groups, to not join groups that are passionate about causes, to not join communities that want to do deep community. Because every time I hear someone say, you know, we need to have a real community, real community. If somebody's messing up in your community, the, you know, the community should come around them and, and kind of, you know, pick them up and collect them. And it's kind of like, oh, yeah. But I think we need a little more education as people about how we do that without moving into these things. And so I wanted to spend the last few minutes talking about maybe just like three or four, like almost red flag, green flag for people. If they're thinking about their 12-step group or their church or their local, you know, or their commune or their whatever it is, you know, what are sort of two or three things that they can take with them that could help them maybe discern whether they're seeing some red flags? I think one of the biggest things that I would recommend to anyone is that you balance, which is really hard to say, it's easy to say, hard to do, balance your passion with rationality. And what I mean is, if you go into a new community, church, coven, whatever, whatever you are, right, you go into this new community and you want to let yourself be part of the process, right? You want to learn about these people. They seem really nice. It seems really cool. You know, Put just a little, a little bit of rationality into this. Get excited about what they're doing, but keep your eyes open. Watch, you know, the we have a tendency to want to fall in love with organizations as much as we want to fall in love with other people in our lives. We want to be in love with the causes we have, but it can cause a kind of blindness as well, emotionally and personally, that we're not actually, we're giving too much of the benefit of the doubt. So... I always recommend if you are going into a new organization, have a luncheon, a coffee date, a something, get to know a couple of colleagues intentionally. Now, this one will be a really helpful thing if you really find that you love this organization because it will help you build new connections and relationships. But one of the things I always recommend asking is asking the person or people that you do this with, can you give me a couple of downsides of this organization, of this business, of what's happening here? Because their ability to tell you the truth about what they're frustrated in will actually tell you how much of a control there is. If you get nothing but good, there's a certain level of fear of sharing the truth about that organization. That's such a great practical tip. I think from my own experience, I have two to add to that. God, that's such a good one and clever so mine are kind of twofold, which is that like I am now weary of subgrouping. So like I don't have a problem with a religion saying we're the only way and you'll be lost if you're not with us because lots of religions think that that's fine. I can opt in or out of that however I want. Now, obviously, I don't want to opt in and be an asshole about it. But I am really weary of a church saying we are the only church doing this brand of religion right. You won't be okay if you go to other churches. And to me, healthy organizations say, hey, we're not the only 12-step group out there. If we're not for you, you know, I hope that you will give another group a try, right? Like, we're not the only coven out there. We're not the only activist group out there. We're not the only commune. I, if, I hope that if you really want commune life and we're not the right fit, like you'll try another one without this sort of existential threat that this particular community is 
somehow right, the only ones that are right and superior, and you're not going to be okay if you leave them. And then my second one is when there is a leader that's typically charismatic, it's a big red flag if that leader claims to be infallible or clairvoyant. Absolutely. There's a difference between saying, I'm going to read this text and I'm going to tell you what God wants, what it means, right? Saying like, oh, God wants us to have three wives apiece. That's what this text says. Now, I don't agree with that, right? And sure, I think that that's probably not what that text says. However, saying our religious texts say that God wants us to have three wives, here's the whatever, is different than saying, Chris, God told me that he wants you to have three wives and he wants them to be Sarah, Mary Jean, and Beth. Here are your new what, right? Like (laughs) people who say like specific things about your life, people who also claim to know you better than you know yourself when it comes to, I know your past. I know things about you that you couldn't know. And not just from a like, because I'm a mental health professional and I can maybe see some dynamics you can't, but from like a metaphysical or spiritual standpoint. And here's my caveat on that. I'm not even saying that like, that's not a real gift because I don't know. Maybe there are people that are clairvoyant, but what I do know is that someone who is clairvoyant and safe to be around is not going to position themselves in a place of authority above you. Absolutely. I fully agree with that. I love your additions because those are absolutely things that I would have added if I thought of them at the time. But yeah, no, that's really one of the things we have to look at is the fact that if you have a spiritual leader who is speaking about, again, I don't really care which belief you are part of. I'm a chaplain. I, I I am Christian, but I also work in a lot of interfaith contexts. And so I don't really care who you say, you know, okay, I believe in this or not believe in this or whatever. But when we drill down to the community dynamics, me telling you what you have to do because I have some mystical ability to tell you exactly how you should live your life is a major red flag. It is such a huge red flag because regardless of whether you believe or not, eventually it becomes the argument of, I can control you with whatever my filter, my interpretation, my best interest is for you. And I expect you to take that word and just live with it because you are not as good as I am. There is a power dynamic there that is inherently vulnerable for the people who are part of a a community like that, that has a leader. And so we have to be careful. And there are every good framework, every positive psychology framework, every positive religious framework, every belief we could have can be misused by toxic people to their own ends. That is the biggest thing. These frameworks are not inherently a bad thing, but you have to watch out for the people who are going to misuse them for their own means and ends. Awesome. Well, Chris, thank you so much for making the time. And I hope that there are some people listening that really maybe got some tangible nuggets to take away either for their healing or for their escape. Well, thank you. It's wonderful to be here today. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, 
a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Co., and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts.